Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Let's start with that. Paul's writing by the Holy Ghost, giving instruction to the church. And he said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Another translation says uh, motivated or influenced by the spirit. He's not talking about praying in the spirit or praying in tongues. He's talking about praying motivated by the spirit and whatever kind of prayer you use. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, other translations uh, relate this in a little bit different way. Some translations, one translation says praying always with all kind of all manner of prayer. Another says different kinds of prayer. Well, you can really understand that from just looking at the King James translation. Because if, if there was just one kind of prayer, if there were not different kinds of prayer or different ways for us to pray, then he would have just saying, said praying with all prayer. or He would have just said praying and making supplication for all saints. The fact that he says praying with all prayer, the all prayer he's talking about are different kinds of prayer. Now, it's a, it's a mystery to me why the church hasn't realized that there are different kinds of prayer. But the reality is so much of the church world just accepts the fact or the, it's not a fact, but accepts the religious notion that all prayer is the same. And as a result, they, their prayer life is weak. They're unsure about what they pray. And the reason for that is because they're using ineffective means or manner, uh, measures, characteristics of praying one kind of prayer that belongs to another. Brother Hagin used to tell the story. He said when he would teach along this line, somebody would always come up to him in the churches and say, well, Brother Hagin, all prayer, prayer is prayer, isn't it? And he says, yeah, and sports are sports. But you play different sports by different rules. You pray different prayers by different rules. So he says praying with all manner or all kinds, different kinds of prayer and supplication and making supplication. So there, he identifies a different kind of prayer, the different kinds of prayer from supplication. So we know supplication is something different then, don't we? He could have just included supplication as part of the, the different kinds, but he identifies different kinds and supplication. So we know there's got to be something different about that. Now, you want to get to Christian's heads just turning uh, cattywampus, ask him what uh, supplication is. Because it's in the Bible over and over again. It's in the New Testament a number of times, but nobody knows what it is. Well, if you don't know what it is, how can you do it? And if we don't know what it is, then that means we're forfeiting or failing to use, whether on purpose or not, we're failing to use an effective means of communicating with God. Well, that's maybe the easiest way to identify why the, church prayer, the church's prayer life, by and large, is weak. God doesn't want you to have a weak prayer life. So again, praying always with all kinds or different manner of prayer and supplication, making supplication in or motivated by the Holy Spirit, influenced by the Holy Spirit. Notice the first thing the Holy Ghost inspire, uh, in, uh, instructs Paul to tell us about prayer. God wants to be involved. The Holy Spirit wants to be involved in your prayer life. Now, if the Holy Spirit wants to be involved in your prayer life, then that means he should have some kind of say-so in what we do and how we do it. Wouldn't you agree? How often do you think that's the case in the church world? Doesn't seem to me like it's too often. It's, in, it's uh, interesting to me how that, uh, the, you know, they'll do certain polls, Christian groups will do certain polls along the, uh, you know, throughout the years and, and things like that. And they've, uh, they've asked a question over and over again for the last, I don't know, almost 20 years now, I guess, uh, one of the research groups. And the question has to do, I guess it's uh, two questions, but um, the question has to do with, do you believe in prayer? 
And, and overwhelmingly, they'll, they'll ask people and ask them to identify, are you a Christian, are you not a Christian? And among Christians, like 90% say, yeah, we believe in prayer. Then they'll follow up with another question. How many of you or have you as an individual ever had an answer to prayer that you know of? And then the number drops down to about 20%. Well, why should we believe in something that we can't make work? Now, some people will stop there and say, well, yeah, that's right. We don't know how to make it work, and so I guess it's all up to God. And they'll shirk their responsibility. But I would submit to you that the Bible gives us enough instruction and enough information so that we can learn how to make it work so that our prayer life can be effective. I don't believe the Holy Ghost gets involved in ineffective prayers. I don't believe the Holy Ghost is involved in prayer failures. And if we're having prayer failures, that's a sure sign to me that it's not motivated by the Holy Ghost. Are you out there? Is this making any sense? I know it may not be uh, easy to hear, but that's the fact. One of the the key elements in, in changing and making something better is to realize where we are. So if your prayer life is not effective, the first and foremost thing I want you to see from verse 18 is not only that there are different kinds of prayer. We need to learn what the different kinds are, learn what rules govern different types of prayer. But we need to get the Holy Ghost involved in our prayer life. Clearly, he wants to be. He said so. Now, this, uh, this topic does not begin in verse 18. It begins in verse 10. Paul is making his final, con- final words and concluding and, and uh, closing his letter to the, to the Ephesians. And you need to understand that the Ephesians are the, the most well-taught group of any church that Paul ever had. Timothy's the pastor. He's learned firsthand from Paul. The church at Ephesus is, is a who's who of Christian celebrities. The mother of Jesus is a part of the church in uh, um, Ephesus. John, the apostle John, is a part of the church. He's not the pastor, but he's a part of the church in Ephesus for a period of time. We don't know exactly if he's there at the time Paul writes this letter, but we do know that he was there for a period of time while he was taking care of Jesus' mother, Mary. So you could well understand that this is a church that knows something about Jesus and therefore would know something about what God has instructed for the church following Jesus' resurrection. So Paul is concluding this letter to the Ephesian church. Paul established it. Paul founded it and then turned it over to Timothy later on in his ministry. But Paul says in making his final remarks, he says, finally, brethren. Now, if you say finally, when you write the letter, if you say finally, this is your final point, right? And most all of us save our most important points for last. Now, if our prayer life is an important thing to God, I would submit to you that he saved this point for the last point to make so that it stuck with them. So he says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, knowing from our vantage point, knowing that he's concluding and talking about prayer in verse 18, we can readily understand that being strong has something to do with being effective in prayer. Which, if you'll allow me, I'll tell you right now why the modern day church is weak in prayer, because they're weak in spirit. The reason prayers don't work in the modern day church, most of the church world, is because Christians are weak. Well, God doesn't want you to be weak, clearly. At least the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to say that he didn't. He says to them, here's the Holy Ghost talking through the Apostle Paul. These aren't Paul's words, these are the Holy Ghost words through him. So he says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We know he's going to conclude by saying that this is for prayer, for the sake of prayer, for the effectiveness of prayer. He goes on in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. So that must have something to do with being strong. Put on the whole armor of God. 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, if he's going to conclude and talk about this being used in prayer in verse 18, then he's saying that this armor is prayer armor. Now, that doesn't mean prayer is the only way that it can be used, but it means it's necessary if you're going to be effective and if you're going to be strong in prayer, if you're going to have an effective prayer life, you're going to have to put on the armor of God. You're going to have to be a person that wears this armor. Why? Because the devil's going to try to trick you. The devil's going to try to trick you, and I would submit to you that that's the reason the church world is weak, is because they've been tricked or deceived, and the devil will try to deceive you in your prayers. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. What does that mean? That means the devil has forces that he uses against you to keep your prayer life from being effective. Now, don't get scared about that. He doesn't have more power than you do. You have the ability to determine. He'll tell you how to determine not only to be strong in the Lord, but how to be strong in the Lord so that your prayer life is effective and successful. But it's up to you. Know this, whether you take it on or not, the devil's going to work against you to try to make you weak in prayer. Meaning to make your prayers ineffective. To keep you from getting the things that you're asking God for. Verse 13, wherefore, because this is true, because this is the work of the devil, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that or so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. William's translation says, when evil attacks you. So the devil does attack you to keep your prayers from being answered. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, not just part of it, but the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day or when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. So he's talking two things. He's talking preparation and action. Prepare yourself to stand, and then after you've made preparation, stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, what in the world is truth? If the Holy Ghost is telling them to have their loins girt about with truth, in other words, another translation says have on the belt of truth, it's a little bit different than the belt that holds up our pants. Paul's talking about the armor of Roman soldier and using that for an illustration. This belt is the wide part of, that goes around the, the, uh, the midsection of the soldier to join all the other pieces of armor together. Interesting that he said truth is what joins everything else together. Now, what is the Holy Ghost talking about when he says your loins gird about with truth? What truth? Well, Jesus was inspired to pray in John chapter 17 and verse 17, the last night of his here, time here on the earth after the Last Supper, when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. One of the things he prayed is, Father, sanctify them, the disciples, through thy word. Thy word is truth. So would the Holy Ghost, who is a part of the Godhead, talk about truth in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 to mean something other than the word when Jesus, a part of the Godhead, in verse 17 of John 17, said that the word of God was truth. We could even interchange the word and not lose a bit of meaning. Having your loins girt about with the word. So what is he talking about? The first thing he mentions about the armor of God, that which makes you strong and effective in your prayer life, is a knowledge of the word. So the first thing I want you to see is that being strong in the Lord comes about through knowledge of God's word. Secondly, he said... The last part of verse 14, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is right standing with God. 
How do you get right standing with God? How do you earn that? Well, you can't earn that. You get it one and only one way, and that is through, through accepting the sacrifice of Jesus personally. You make Jesus the Lord of your life. You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess him as your Lord and Savior. But just because you've been made righteous doesn't mean that makes you effective in your prayer life. Having on the breastplate of righteousness means to come to the knowledge or the understanding of what righteousness means for you. Righteousness is one of the only things that the Bible says that you can't grow in. But you can grow in the knowledge of it. You can learn who you are in Christ. You can learn what righteousness means and what, it, what belongs to you because you've been made righteous. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a means of protection to stand against the work of the devil and the, the attacks of the devil in your prayer life. A part of being strong in the Lord is to find out the knowledge of what righteousness means to you. Who it means you are in Christ Jesus. So, so far, two out of two pieces of the armor that he identifies has to do with knowledge that comes from the word. The next thing he mentions, verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does gospel of peace mean? Well, the gospel always means good news. What's the good news of peace? The fact that Jesus has made peace between us and God. The Bible says, Paul wrote to the church and said, Jesus has broken down the middle wall of partition, making peace with God for us. In other words, it means the good news, the gospel of peace is because of the work of Jesus God's always on our side. We're always on his side. Why? Because we're in Christ Jesus. We're just as much in the family of God as Jesus is. Now let me ask you a question. What do you find out that good news? There's only one place you can find out that good news. It comes from the knowledge of the word of God and what the Bible tells us that Jesus has done. So now we're three for three. When it comes to the armor of God that enables you to withstand the, the devil's attacks, the armor of God that makes you strong and able to be effective in your prayer life, have a successful prayer life, so far we're three for three on all these things ba being based on and come from the knowledge of the Word of God in these different areas. Verse 16, above all, that means overall, doesn't mean more importantly, it just means covering everything else. Above all, taking the shield of faith, Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Where does faith come from? That's great. What do we do? Do we pray for faith? No, the Bible says in Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So if you're going to have this shield of faith, this protective measure of faith that enables you to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might so that your prayer life is effective and successful. So far, we're four for four when it comes to these pieces of the armor being based on the knowledge of God's word. The next thing he mentions. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. Well we know what the sword of the spirit is. Sword of the spirit is the knowledge of the word. An effective means of using the word of God. How do you find out how to use the word of God effectively? Through the word. Well, what about the helmet of salvation? Salvation is what you have because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. Why the helmet of salvation? Because it guards your mind. Which is the arena that the prayer battle is fought in. The prayer battle is not fought in the natural realm. The prayer battle is not fought in your heart or you're in your spirit. The prayer battle is fought in your mind. What in the world is going to settle our minds... 
and cause us to think right instead of think according to the devil's deception, knowledge of the word. Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? By the word of God. So in every one of these, when he said, be strong in the Lord, here's the last thing I want to leave with you by the Holy Ghost. God's inspired me by the Holy Ghost. He's inspired me, Paul is saying, to the church that this is the most important thing that I want to leave you with in this message. I want your prayer life to be effective. I want you to be successful in prayer. And here's the only way you can. You have to be strong in the Lord, which means you have to be strong in the knowledge of God's word about being made righteous, the truth of who we are in Christ, the good news that God's always on our side because of Jesus. Our minds are protected and settled and sound by the knowledge of the word, applying the knowledge of the word. We've got the shield of faith, which is always based on the word of God. That will overcome anything the devil throws at us. And finally we take the sword of the spirit. Which is the only offensive weapon on the list. Which is the word of God itself. You're supposed to use the word of God in prayer. Verse 18. Praying. With different kinds of prayer. Now folks I would submit to you. That if the church knew all the things. That that Paul identifies by the Holy Ghost. As the, the armor of God. If the church had knowledge. Like they should. Like they're supposed to about these different areas of who we are in Christ that understand that there are different kinds of prayer. They'd understand how to be more effective and how to be more successful in prayer. Jesus expected and still expects for every believer's prayers to be as effective as his were when he was here on the earth. What was Jesus' prayer life like? Well, remember when he stood before Lazarus' tomb? He said, Father, I thank you that you hear me, but I know you hear me always. He knew that God always heard him. Why? Because of his knowledge of who he was, the mission that God had given him here on the earth, and the knowledge of the word. It was knowledge that made Jesus strong. That's why you don't see Jesus facing situations and have to go to prayer to find out what to do about it. When the sick came to Jesus, he didn't have to kneel down and say, well, now, wait a minute. Let's pray and see if it's God's will for you to be well. Why? Because he had knowledge of the word of God. He had knowledge of who God was. He had knowledge of what God sent him to do. You don't see Jesus praying in the middle of situations in the middle of crisis. Now, he did his praying on his own time. But he was always equipped when the crisis arose. Why? Because he was strong. He was strong through the knowledge of who he was, what he was sent to do, and the word that was given to him to equip him. And he said you'd be the same as him. With the same knowledge. With the same equipment. Folks what I want you to understand is. It's knowledge that makes you strong. And that knowledge can only come through the word. It doesn't even come through somebody's preaching. It comes through the word. You seeing the word for yourself. Now turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Verse 16, the last part of verse 16 is what I want you to see, but then we'll back up and we'll get it in context too. Notice the last sentence of verse 16. I believe it should be a a verse on its own, but the translators didn't see fit to do it that way. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I like this from the Amplified. I think it says something along this line. The continued heartfelt prayer. Of a righteous man. 
makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. So the point that the Holy Ghost is trying to get across, and the Amplified brings it out very well, is that your prayers should be and can be effective, but it's based on righteousness. Remember that was part of the armor of God? The breastplate of righteousness? The knowledge of righteousness will either ensure or go a long way to completing the truth of making your prayers effective and successful. But notice he says, even from the King James, the effectual fervent prayer. The effectual fervent prayer. The word that's translated effectual fervent, it's one Greek word that's translated both effectual and fervent in the, uh, in the King James. It means energetic. But just energetic doesn't get the point across. Because it's talking about just not energy. If it was just left the, uh, translated the energetic prayer of a righteous man avails much, then people would start thinking that's physical energy. And it's not physical energy that makes it, your prayers effective. It's spiritual energy. That's why it says effective heartfelt or effectual heartfelt because it's got to be from the heart. Sure, it's got to be energetic. It's got to be spiritual energy, but it's always got to be from the heart, from the spirit, not from the flesh and not from the mind. That's one thing that it's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer, different kinds of prayer, different manner of prayer in the spirit. In the spirit, motivated by the Holy Ghost, not motivated by your head. Not motivated by your circumstances, but motivated by your spirit, by the Holy Ghost operating in your spirit. You're supposed to be spirit-led in prayer. And that's one of the greatest ways to be effective. But notice that effectiveness is based on the knowledge of the fact that you are righteous. Now, this verse of Scripture, in my opinion, has been used by the devil to club people over the head. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And the devil's right there on your shoulder saying, yeah, if only you were righteous. Well, why does the church buy into that? I did. There was a time when I did. Why do we buy into that? Because we don't have knowledge of who we are. When I gained the knowledge of who I was in Christ, when I gained the knowledge of that righteousness being based on the blood of Jesus and not on my own actions, whether good or bad, when I found that out, I realized that the Bible is saying, my prayers make tremendous power available. Boy, the first time I said that, I looked at myself in the mirror and said, my prayers make tremendous power available, dynamic in their workings. I was almost embarrassed. I'm looking at myself in the mirror thinking, who in the world do you think you are? Well, that's a great question. Who do I think I am? Well, according to the Bible, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I don't feel like that. I have found very few people who have been made righteous that do feel righteous. And it's never a prerequisite to righteousness that you ever get to the place where you feel like you are. I don't feel like I am today, but I know I am. And it comes down to knowledge, folks, not feelings. How many people do you know that whose prayer life is based on their feelings instead of the knowledge of who they are? You can see why we're weak in prayer, can't you? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Makes tremendous power available, dynamic in his working. Now, again, this is not the beginning of the topic. The topic begins in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted, going through a test, trial, or a hard place? I think James was pretty safe in asking the church that. Here's the answer. Let him pray. The answer for your hard place is prayer. But now you tell me, is the Holy Ghost saying, now just pray and hope for the best? Or is he talking about praying successfully 
and in an effective manner. He's talking about successful prayer. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? The implication is that the individual should take responsibility for themselves. That's a new concept for most of the church world. Most of the church world is trying to get as many other people praying for them as they can. And never do you find that as being a principle of prayer. Is any afflicted? Let him pray. Him pray. The individual who's afflicted, let him pray. Why? Because God hears the prayers of a righteous person. If you're in the family of God, you're made righteous. And it's time you found out about it and started standing up on your own. That's what James is saying by the Holy Ghost. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. It's interesting to me that just as much as people are, are quick to get people to pray for them when they're in a hard place, when things are going well for them, they don't ask other people to sing for them. They're perfectly willing to do that when things are going good. Why? Because it's natural. We're happy, so we'll do our own singing. In the same way, when we face a hard times or a hard place in life, we should be willing to do our own praying. But, but Pastor Mike, I don't know that God's going to hear my prayer. What does that mean? That means somebody is saying, I don't know who I am. What's going to change it? People praying for them? No, the knowledge of who they are. Coming to the knowledge of who they are and acting on that knowledge. Is any sick among you? Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Notice both people are involved. The individual is involved by getting somebody to help and the elders are involved by praying over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith. Now that tells you right here, right off the bat, that there is one kind of prayer that's called the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. So he's talking about one of those specific kinds or different manners of prayer that Ephesians 6.18 must refer to. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, does that mean we'll get them saved? No, this word save is the same word translated whole, made whole in Mark chapter 5 and verse 24. Where it talks about the woman with issue of blood. Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Literally, thy faith has saved thee. So where it says in the prayer, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, he's talking about effective prayer. He's talking about a different kind of prayer, a specific kind of prayer, one of the different kinds of prayer that works and brings healing to the sick. In other words, it gets the answer that it seeks from God. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice it doesn't say anything but if. See, sometimes sins are associated with sickness. Sometimes they're not. Well, but Pastor Mike, if I've got some sin in my life, don't I have to straighten that up? No. Get the elders to pray for you. And the same prayer that heals the sick forgives sins. Verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now he's still talking about the healing for the sick, but he's talking about it in a different way. He's saying, now you can, pray the, you can get the elders to pray the prayer of faith over you. Or if you've got something against your brother, if there's some step outside of love that's between you and somebody else, you don't even have to get the elders to pray. Go to that person and confess your faults. The word false is the word sin. It's not talking about confess your sins like the Catholics do. It's talking about if I've got something against you, I go to you and ask you to forgive me. 
And notice it says that just clearing that up, just stepping back inside of love, will enable you to pray for each other. And the same healing that comes through the anointing of oil and the prayer of faith by the elders shall take place. Why? Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not the effectual fervent prayer of the preachers. Not the effectual fervent prayer of the elders. We've seen that that worked. Verse 16 or verse 14 told us about that. Verse 14, verse 15. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Verse 15 identifies that the prayer of the elders, when it's at the request of the individual who's sick, will save the sick or heal the sick. But now he's saying you can get the same healing by walking in love between one another, which tells you that love or a step outside of love or more specifically unforgiveness is a great hindrance to receiving your answers from God. Why? Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the person that knows who he is in Christ, shall avail much. Now turn back with me to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 43. I want you to see something that that the Bible says here about this. I'm taking a lot of time on my introduction. Don't know if I'm going to get anywhere this evening, but that's all right. Jesus isn't coming back till the end of the summer, so we've got time. Notice Isaiah 43, verse 26. Isaiah 43, verse 26. Here's God speaking in the Old Testament. He said, put me in remembrance. Remembrance of what? Remembrance of what he said. What has God said? What we know of is the word of God. So even under the Old Covenant, and God doesn't change between the Old Covenant and the New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. God's the same. He never changes. They didn't know everything under the old covenant that we know under the new. They didn't have everything under the old covenant that we have under the new. On the uh, um, contrary wise, we do have everything they had plus more. We've got the same blessing of Abraham, which is the whole thing. The blessing of the Jews is the blessing of Abraham. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 tells you what for. Two reasons. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. And secondly, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So he's saying the new covenant is everything that they had under the old covenant. All the blessings of the Jews and not the blessings of Israel, the nation per se. But all the blessings that the individual children of Abraham had belong to us. All those promises of the Old Testament concerning prosperity and God multiplying and all that kind of stuff. That belongs to us. But we've got more. Hebrews 8, 6 says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. So what is God saying? Put me in remembrance. Now, why is he saying? First of all, why is he saying put me in remembrance? Is God getting so old that it's hard to remember? He needs somebody to remind him. No, he needs you to know or he needs to know that you know what he said. The remembrance is for your sake, not for his. Remembrance is for you to become knowledgeable of what he has said, what he has promised. Put me in remembrance. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Now, folks, however you want to dice this or split it up or or define it or whatever you want to, prayer in its simplest form is communicating with God. Some people have the idea that you've got to be in a certain posture to pray. You can't pray unless you're, you know, laying down with your face on the floor. Well, the Bible never talks about that. Some people think you've got to have your hands folded or your eyes closed or whatever. Well, that's all silly. 
I mean, nothing wrong with closing your eyes or folding your hands if that's what you're interested in. But that folding your hand stuff mostly came from pictures that somebody drew a long time ago. Nowhere does the Bible say, I wish above all things that men would pray with folded hands. It says, with hands lifted. That's the picture the New Testament paints of prayer. Pray with hands lifted unto God. Why? Because that signifies that I know where my help's coming from. So he said, let us plead together. In other words, he's talking about prayer. He's talking about, he's specifically saying, talk to me. That's what prayer is. In its simplest form, prayer is talking to God. Not talking at him. Talking to him. Maybe a better way to say that is talking with him. Because he said, let us plead together. That's not a monologue. That's you talking and God talking back. Put me in remembrance. Remind me of what I've said. So what's one of the first things we see about prayer? Prayer means, or one aspect of prayer, successful prayer. I would assume this would be successful prayer since God told you to do it. I mean, if anybody's going to know what works in prayer, it ought to be God. Wouldn't you agree? And God said, take the word with you to prayer. Put me in remembrance. Talk to me about what I've said. Let us plead together. I'll talk to you. You talk to me. Prayer is supposed to be a two-way communication, not a one-way communication. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Notice the next thing he says. He says, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. What? I've got to remind you, Lord, I've got to declare my justification before you. You don't remember that you saved me? What is this in context with? Look at the previous verse. Look at verse 25. God said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will remember thy sins, will not remember thy sins. Now, I want you to notice something. He said, I'm the one that that blots out your transgressions. This word blots out is talking about redemption. It's a promise of the future. It's a promise of what we have, not what they had. They had their sins covered. We have our sins redeemed, removed, literally dissolved, done away with once and for all. Your sins went upon Jesus. If you talk to God about something you did before you got saved, he's not going to know what you're talking about because he says he doesn't remember your sins. They were taken over by Jesus. And notice why, not for your sake, for his sake. I thought God saved me for my sake. No, he saved you for his. The reason that he removes your sins is because if they had not been removed, he would not be able to not remember them. I know that's not good English, but you know what I'm saying. There's no way he could forget your sins if they had not been removed. See, folks, God does not wink at things. He does not play at this salvation stuff. He really did redeem you by the blood of Jesus. He really did wipe out your sins. Well, if your sins were wiped out, what does that mean? That means you have been made righteous. That's the context he's talking about. That's the context he's referring to. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. I'm the one that redeems you. I'm the one that removes your sins. For my own sake. He had to remove your sins so that he could make you his child. God couldn't just take away part sins and then say, well, you know, but they really did a lot of bad stuff. Okay, we'll just call you my son. No. It's a real legal situation, folks. It's a legal situation for all eternity. He removed your sins. Now, whether or not you ever accept that is up to you. Whether or not you accept that to be true or you go by your feelings about who you are and how good you are, that's up to you. But the truth is he removed your sins. 
The truth is you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, period. Whether you ever feel it or not. Now, look at the number of times that we've just looked at the Scriptures, just a few that we've already seen, where prayer, effective prayer, is based on righteousness. It's, a base, it's based on the knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus, the knowledge of our righteousness and all that belongs to us as a result of it. Notice what we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 6 and James chapter 5 about how effective prayer, supernatural results, is dependent on the knowledge of righteousness. Now, here's God saying in the Old Testament, because he doesn't change between old and new. Here's God saying in the Old Testament, I'm the one, even me, I'm the one that removed your sin. I took away your sin. It was me that took away your sin. And I did it from me, not for you. You get some benefit of it, absolutely. But I didn't do it for you. I did it for me. And I will not remember your sins. Because I took them away, because I dissolved them, there's nothing for me to remember. And I did that for me. So what do I want you, God saying to the church, what do I want you to do? Put me in remembrance. Remind me of what I've said. Why? Not because God forgot, because he needs to know you know. Why? Because if you don't know, it won't work. The promises of God don't fall on you because God promised them. The promises of God fall on you because you take them. You have to take hold of them. So he said, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. You talk to me, I'll talk to you. Why? Is God going to try to talk you out of what he's promised? No. He's going to talk to you so that you understand how good what he promised really is. It's so that he can reveal what belongs to you. But you have to take hold first. You have to put him in remembrance. God didn't say, now don't worry about remembering the word. I'll remind you. I'll talk to you about the word so that you learn as we go. It's not what he said. You take the first step. Because you've been made righteous, put him in remembrance of his promise. Somebody said, I don't know who to credit this to, but man, it's a good statement. The most effective prayer there is, is argumentative prayer. Because because Isaiah 45 verse 26 is talking about argumentative prayer. It's like going to God in prayer and saying, Father, you said this. And the devil's right there saying, yeah, but you don't think that's going to work. And you answering and saying, now, Father, the devil says this is not going to work. You're big enough to make this happen, aren't you? And God said, forever, my word is settled in heaven. Okay, that does it for me. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Notice the next thing he said. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. You're going to have to in prayer because here's where the prayer battle is won or lost. You're going to have to in prayer identify and establish and hold fast to your righteousness in prayer. Why? Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But if the devil can talk you out of your righteousness, if he can talk you out of who you are in Christ Jesus, forget about getting your prayers answered, which is exactly where most of the modern day church world is. Are you out there? Turn with me over to First John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. So we see that God wants us to be effective in prayer. He wants our prayers to be a a success and successful. He wants you to be a successful prayer. Do you understand what I mean by that? He wants every prayer you pray to be effective and successful. And folks, that's not some far out idea. 
The Bible guarantees it if you learn the rules. If you learn the rules of how to pray effectively, if you learn what prayers work in what situations, what prayers to use in different tests and different trials and different situations that we face, and pray them effectively according to the rules, you can be effective and successful in in your prayer life every time you pray. Every time. Prayer is not supposed to be hit and miss. Prayer is supposed to be hit and hit. 1 John 5. Verse 14. Well, we better back up. Let's back up to verse, uh, verse 11. 1 John 5, verse 11. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. The eternal life is righteousness, isn't it? Different way to say it, but He's still talking about the same thing. He's saying we're righteous. We have the life of God within us because of Jesus and his sacrifice. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Hello? Verse 12. And he that hath the Son hath this life. And he that hath the Son hath not life. Based on Jesus. Whatever he says, therefore, is talking about your relationship with God through Jesus. Right? That's eternal life. Eternal life is because God, for his own sake... Removed our sins and imparted his righteousness to us. Well, really, imparted leaves the wrong idea. He didn't just lay righteousness on us. He made us righteous. That's what the new birth is all about. It's the unrighteous man dying and the righteous man being born. How does that happen without our bodies dying? I have no idea. I just know the Bible says it takes place instantly. You don't stop being you, but you get a new spirit. You're the same personality you were before, but now you've got the life of God and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So who is he writing to? He's writing to righteous people. He's writing to those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, those that are saved, those that are righteous, so that you may know you have eternal life. And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice being born again is not where you stop believing on the name of Jesus. Are you out there? Knowing that you're the righteousness of God is where you start believing in the name of Jesus, really. You have to believe on the name of Jesus to be saved. So, that you know, there's a beginning point there. But, man, that's when the name of Jesus really becomes real to you. When you find out who you are and begin to operate in it. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, this righteousness, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. Now, please understand, folks, if you don't know you're righteous, you're not going to have any confidence. Confidence comes from knowledge. That's true in spiritual things. It's true in natural things. Confidence comes from knowledge. You find somebody that's got experience and somebody that's starting off in some new thing, whether it's business, whether it's sports, whatever it is. You find somebody that's doing the same exact thing. The person with experience is going to have more confidence than the person that's just starting off. Why? Because they know more about it. They may not even be better at them, better than the other guy at it. But they know more. And that knowledge brings confidence. Always. So he says, because you know that you've been born again, because you know that you've got the life of God on the inside of you, because you know you've been made righteous, this is the confidence we have in him. Again, folks, I hate to keep using the same illustration, but this is why the church world by and large is weak. They have no confidence because they don't know who they are. 
They're praying that God will do something from heaven, change something by pouring out something from heaven to make things different. That's not what makes things different. What makes things different is the confidence that comes from the knowledge of the word. And this is the confidence that we have in him. Well, what confidence do we have, John? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's talking about prayer, isn't he? Prayer would be asking. Asking would be communicating with God. So he said, here's the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Some people will stop right there and say, oh, yeah, if we only knew what the will of God was. And that's where most of the church world lives. Well, if you want to know what the will of God is, read the will. The Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament and the New Covenant. Now, what does that mean? It means a testament is a will. If you've made a will out for your family or for your loved ones, some way or another, it says this is the last will and testament of so-and-so. Put your name in there. The Old Testament was the will of God under the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, the New Testament, is the will of God under the New Covenant. Not because His will has changed, but things have been amended. If you made a will 10 years ago, you're probably going to have to revise your will because you own more stuff now than you did 10 years ago. Well, the Bible says we own more than they did in the old covenant. We have a better covenant, a better will established upon better promises. The promises are better. The blessings are better than what they had in the old covenant. That's why he tells us about it in the New Testament or the new covenant. So if you want to know what the will of God is, all you got to do is read the will. In other words, knowledge of the word is what causes you to know whether or not you're asking it according to his will. Here's the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask or pray, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Let me suggest that the church world turn this around. Rather than looking at the asking according to his will part and focusing on that, let's focus on the hearing us part. Notice that he said the key to effective or successful prayer is to get God to hear you. That's it. All you got to do is get God to hear you and you're in. Okay, you can go home. Folks, I want you to realize how important that is. James is saying, by the Holy Ghost. Here's the Holy Ghost telling you how to be effective in prayer. And if the Holy Ghost wants to influence and be involved in your prayer life to make you successful in prayer, then he ought to know what he's talking about, about how to make prayer effective and successful. And he said the key is to get God to hear you. We know that if he hears us, we have what we asked. That's all it takes, is if we know that, we, that he hears us, we have what we ask. Remember what Jesus said? I think we referred to it earlier in the service. Jesus standing in front of Lazarus' tomb. He said, I thank you, Father, that you hear me always. But I'm just saying this for the sake of those that are standing by. I know you always hear me. That's why I always got answers. You come to the place where God always hears you, you'll always get answers. What does it take for God to hear us? Asking according to his will. Folks, his word is his will, so to ask according to his word is to get God to hear you and answer every time. How much easier can you make it than that? Listen, folks, God knew who he was working with. He couldn't have made this hard. Now, the church makes it, the church muddies the water. Church makes it real tough. 
But Jesus said, this is how simple it is. The Holy Ghost said, this is how simple it is. And notice he's talking about confidence. He's talking about knowing. There's not a hope so in there. There's not a maybe so in there. There's not a chances are good. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will. Let's substitute the word word in there. Meaning the word of God for the word will. Here's the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his word. He hears us. Well isn't that what Isaiah 43 verse 26 was saying. Put me in remembrance. Bring Bring the word of God. Bring what I've said. To me in prayer. Isn't it the same thing? Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Why declare thou that thou mayest be justified? Know that you're righteous. Stand your ground based on who you've been made by the blood of Jesus. The righteousness of God that you've been made by the blood of Jesus. Stand your ground and don't give an inch. You declare so that you be justified. How? In prayer. I think the devil talks too many people out of what belongs to him. Because they don't know who they are in Christ. Folks, we touched on this Sunday evening in prayer school or in healing school. But let me remind you of something. Jesus did what he did here on the earth because he was a righteous man under the old covenant. If he had not been a righteous man under the old covenant, he could not have done what he did, even though the anointing of the Holy Ghost was upon him. There's no way that the spirit of God could have been on him without measure if he had not been a righteous man under the old covenant. Now, righteousness was imputed to certain people. We could have gone a little bit further in James chapter 5 where it talks about Elisha as an example of the righteous man or Elijah as an example of a righteous man. Elijah's messing up all over the place. That righteousness couldn't have been based on his own actions because you remember after the great contest between God and the prophets of Baal on on, uh, Mount Carmel, he winds up going and sitting up under a juniper tree and complaining about him being the only one that hadn't backslid. That doesn't sound too righteous to me. That doesn't sound like he knows who he is in God. Here's a statement that will shock you. You know more than any Old Testament prophet did about who you are in your relationship with God. Moses had no clue about relationship with God like you know. Elijah, with all the miracles and signs and wonders he did, had no clue about the relationship you can have with God by being made righteous by the blood of Jesus that you know about. Joshua, who kept the sun in place while he defeated his enemies, knew nothing about righteousness like you do. And look at what they did. Should the church today not be doing more or at least as much? So notice what it's saying. It's saying your relationship with God through righteousness is the foundation for you asking God whatever his word says is yours or can be yours, and God always hears that. And if he hears it, he always, always, always answers. Let me prove it to you real quickly before we go. John chapter 15. John chapter 15 verse, well, verse 7 is what we want to go to. Don't know if we'll start there or not. We'll see. Sorry for running out of time on this. I know I'm keeping you over. John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said, if you abide in me. Now, what does abiding in Jesus mean? It means being in Christ. How can a person be in Christ? By accepting Jesus' sacrifice, confessing Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and thereby 
being made righteous. He's born again. He's made righteous. He's saved. So he's talking about a relationship with God through Jesus. If you abide in me. For our purposes, we'll say, if you've been made righteous by my blood and my words abide in you. So the word's supposed to live on in you. It's not just words on a page in a book that you look at every now and then when you go to church. The word's supposed to live in you. In other words, you're supposed to know the word of God to such a degree that you can remind God of what he said. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Two two, uh, conditions. If you abide in me, it's based on relationships, it's based on righteousness. If you abide in me, number one. Number two, if my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Yeah, but somebody will always say, Pastor Mike, what if somebody prayed something out of the will of God? You're not going to pray out of the will of God if his words abide in you. That's what abiding in him and abiding, the word abiding in you means. It means you having given yourself over to what God's word says instead of your own thinking, your own way, or your own selfish inclinations. If you abide in me, righteousness, and my words abide in you. If the word lives on in you, well, what are we supposed to do with the word living on in us? You're supposed to use the word in prayer. Using the sword of the spirit in prayer, that's a part of the armor that makes us strong in the Lord. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, here's something you can remind God of. Put him in remembrance of. Lord, you said if the word of God abides in me, and because I'm made righteous by the blood of Jesus, you said I can ask for anything I want to. And you'd do it. And that's the kind of prayer that starts getting answers. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but what if somebody said... Lord, I want 10 million oil wells. Now, you might dismiss that out of hand and say, well, that's just being foolish and being selfish. If you had a need for 10 million oil wells to finish the work God's given you here on the earth, that's not out of, out of the realm of reason. I don't know anybody that would. But, folks, Jesus said nothing is impossible. But remember, James also said, you ask and have not because you ask not. And then he said, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss selfishly to consume it upon your own flesh see if the word's really living only in you if you're not trying to run a game on god you're not asking for things selfishly you're asking for things that are according to god's plan and purpose for your life now that doesn't mean you can't ask for something better than what you've got i don't believe asking for a home is a selfish request i don't believe asking for a better car is a selfish request folks the bible says god rides on the clouds he doesn't care what car you've got He's not impressed whatever you choose. But see, the devil tries to beat people up and beat people down, saying, well, God doesn't want you to have anything. How in the world can you come up with that? Or some people will say, well, but God will meet your desires or meet your needs, but not your desires. Well, let's finish reading here and turn to another one. I thought I was through, but I'm not. If you abide in me, righteousness, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Verse 8, herein is my Father glorified. God is glorified when you get answers to your prayers. That's why God wants you to be a successful prayer. He wants you to be a successful prayer because he gets glorified when you get answers. 
He gets glorified when you get answers. We look at it like, well, we get the better part of that deal when we get answers. God, Jesus said, God's glorified when you get answers. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, bearing fruit has got to be in relation to verse 7, which is praying. He's got to be talking about God being glorified by you bearing prayer fruit. Getting answers to your prayers. He's got to be talking about that. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Notice Jesus said one of the earmarks of his disciples, not just a believer, but a disciple. An earmark or a characteristic of a disciple is that he has a successful prayer life. He asks for what he wills because the Word of God is abiding in him and he's abiding in the Lord and he gets what he asks for. And that will change your perspective on things. We as Christians most often have the idea they're trying to talk God out of something or talk him into doing something that he probably really doesn't want to do on his own anyway when the Bible says God's glorified when you get prayer answers. What about the attitude that some people have? Well, now we just don't want any of this world's goods. Do you realize that that is taking glory away from God? Do you realize that that attitude is taking glory away from God? Just the idea that we'll just take whatever comes along in life and just try to tough through it, that's robbing God of glory. Now, you make people mad talking like this, but it's exactly what Jesus said. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, that you get answers to your prayers. Quit living on Barely Get Along Street. Way down at the end of the block next to Grumble Alley, as Brother Hagin used to say. But that's what so many Christians think being humble is. Well, we just won't ask for anything. Why? According to what Jesus said, that's just stupid. Let me tell you what it is. It's religious. It's not Christian. It's not New Testament. It's religious. And religion is what Jesus fought with the Pharisees about. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Turn with me over to uh, Mark chapter 11. Thought I was through, but I'm not. If you need to go, go ahead. If I'm the last one here, I'll just preach me happy and be done after that. Mark chapter 11, Jesus curses the fig tree. The disciples see the results of his words the next day when it's dried up from the roots. Peter calling them to remember, saying, Master, look, the fig tree which you cursed yesterday is withered away. Jesus answers, verse 22, and said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe or have faith that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Please notice he's talking about in verse 23, faith works by saying. He does not say a word about prayer. He does not say in verse 22, pray the prayer of faith. He said, have faith in God. Now, let me show you the difference. Verse 24 is talking about the prayer of faith. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here's, here's the difference. If there are different kinds of prayer, and one of the prayers, different kinds of prayer that is clearly identified by James chapter 5, verse 15, is the prayer of faith. That means there are times and situations and circumstances where you can and should pray the prayer of faith. But not every prayer is going to be the prayer of faith. But you can pray every prayer in faith. Is that confusing? 
Let me explain what I mean. If somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for me. I want to get saved. Well, the Bible says the only way you can get saved is by faith. So I would lead them in a prayer where they pray the prayer of faith. They would express their belief in the word of God concerning Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. And they, with their mouth, would confess Jesus is Lord. They're praying the prayer of faith. Even if I led them, it's them praying the prayer of faith that would cause them to be saved. Right? So the prayer of faith would save them. Cause them to enter into the kingdom of God. Cause them to be born again. Cause them to be made righteous. But if you came to me and said, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for my loved one. I want you to pray that they'll be saved. I can't pray the prayer of faith over that. Because their determination and their will determines that. Not mine or yours. But I can pray in faith. Because I know it's the will of God for everybody to be saved. Then all it comes down to is the individual, your loved one, hearing and receiving the good news of Jesus. So what would we do? Well, it would be a three-step process. Step number one, we'd bind the devil. Tell him to take his hands off your loved one. Stop blinding their mind to the truth. Step number two, pray Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. That God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Step number three, pray that God would send a laborer across their path. Somebody that could share the truth of Jesus with them in a way that they could hear and receive it and accept it. I can pray that in faith because I know that's entirely according to the will of God. But that's not the prayer of faith. So when Jesus says have faith in God, he's talking about faith as a lifestyle. Sometimes faith in God dictates and determines that you'll pray the prayer of faith. Other times faith just speaks based on the knowledge of what faith will do. Well, what will faith do? That's what verse 23 is all about. Here's what faith will do. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe or have faith. That those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is expressing knowledge about the subject of faith. Knowledge that most of the church world will not or has not accepted outside of receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. I was talking to somebody the other day. I was in a restaurant talking to them the other day. And they came and they said that, that they've got a problem in their life. And they wanted me to pray. They said, I want you to remember every day, Pastor Mike. I want you to pray about this every day. And I said, I'm not going to promise that. Well, it was like I'd slapped them. They were shocked. You mean you're not going to pray for me? I didn't say I wouldn't pray for you, but I'm not going to remember you every day. I've got things going on. And they've got the idea that they've got people all over that are praying for them every day. Well, they don't. That's foolish to think that. People are concerned about you when they're in front of them. Outside of that, it's a hit and miss. They may remember, they may not. And so I said, here's what I will do. I'll tell you what you can do to get an answer to your situation. And just started giving some of the basics. This person was saved. Been in church, a local church for many, many years. At least according to what they told me. I started sharing just the basics, just simple things about the truth of the word and believing God and standing in faith and stuff like that. They looked at me like I was from Mars. I thought to myself, what a waste of time. So I finally just said, I'll forget it. I'll pray. That made them happy. I didn't say I'd pray every day. I just said I'd pray. 
But notice what knowledge Jesus had. Folks, here's why Jesus was strong. Because he knew God. He knew the word. He knew what belonged to him. He said, whosoever shall say. He didn't say this just works for me because I'm the son of God. He said this works for anybody who has knowledge. Who's strong in the Lord. Please understand, folks, we're talking about what John Lake called the strong man's way to God. And not everybody, not every Christian that says they want to be strong is willing to be strong. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain. It doesn't say a word about praying, does he? Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. That those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. That's all Jesus did. Jesus didn't pray about the fig tree. He didn't ask God to destroy the fig tree. He didn't ask God to move the fig tree. He just cursed the fig tree. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. That's all he did. He spoke to it. He recognized that there was power in words. Now, if Jesus was tempted in every point like as we are, whether in this case or in some other point in his life, whenever he spoke the word of God, the devil had to be there. I know because he's been there with me. If Jesus was tempted in every point like I am, then it had to happen to him, just like it happened to me, where the devil says, who do you think you are saying something like that? And that's the point where most Christians will fold up their tent and say, well, yeah, you're right. I don't have any business doing that. I just heard some preacher say that, but everybody knows that wouldn't work. And they're defeated because of their lack of knowledge. Jesus knew something and operated in it. Now notice what he says in verse 24. Verse 24, he said, therefore, I say unto you, because the principle of faith works, By believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Therefore I say unto you what things soever you desire when you pray. Now he's talking about prayer. Now he's talking about prayer. What things soever you desire when you pray. Believe that you receive them the things you desire. And you shall have them the things that you desire. Notice he's talking about what you desire. He didn't say a word in the world about the will of God. He said, whatsoever things you desire. Now, but Pastor Mike, what if somebody prays something that's out of the will of God? Well, then you wouldn't have faith for it. You might be saying the words, but they'd be empty words. There wouldn't be any spirit of faith behind it. You know as well as I do that we've all prayed prayers that we didn't believe in. And those are the prayers that the devil talked us out of and we didn't get any results. But notice he doesn't say a word about meeting your needs. He's talking about things that you desire. Here's one thing the devil is whispering in people's ears. Well, God may meet your needs, but he's not going to meet your desires. Jesus talked about what you desire. I don't know how that could be any more clear. What things soever you desire. Jesus didn't say, now, the few things that, you know, God's into needs, not into desires. But if you desire just these few special things, maybe it would work for that. No, he said, whatsoever things you desire. Whatsoever things you desire. Whatsoever things you desire. It amazes me how Christians don't know the difference between things that are good and things that are bad. See, I know that healing is good. So if I desired healing, I'd be desiring a good thing. But so much of the church will says, well, now we don't know if it's good or not. Are you crazy? Well, we don't know if God really wants to meet our needs or not. Are you serious? You don't know that it's better to have your needs met than to be poor and broke and in debt? Boy, that's a great Christian testimony. I owe money to everybody in town. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Where do people get these ideas? From religion. These are religious ideas, not New Testament ideas. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, how can we know what the will of God is? Read the will. Don't talk to me about the will of God if you hadn't read it. 
And that's exactly what the church world does. The church world questions the will of God without, with zero knowledge of what the will says. I don't know if you can tell her or not, but that just makes me a happy camper. Because unfortunately, that's the majority of the Christian world. Jesus said, what things soever you desire. What things soever you desire. Doesn't sound to me like you put any cap on it. What things soever you desire. When you pray. So you must want you to pray about your desires. Some people say, well, God knows what my desires are. Well, he knows what your needs are too. But Jesus said to pray about those as well. He prayed in the Lord's Prayer, what the church world calls the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Why ask if God already knows you need it? See, that doesn't hold water. God knows what you need of before you ask him, but you're still supposed to ask. God knows what you desire before you ask him, but you're still supposed to ask. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, the things that you desire, and you shall have them. The qualifier is if you're praying for something you can believe for. Faith begins where the will of God is known. You're not going to have faith for something. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're not going to have faith for something if you don't have the word of God on it. So in order to believe for what you desire, you're going to have to find out from the will of God, the word of God, what, this, what God said belongs to you. So that you can ask for what you desire and receive it. What we're talking about, folks, is the will of God in prayer. That's why we started this series with the prayer of consecration and commitment, or the prayer of consecration, and then the second week, the prayer of commitment. Because so much of the church world has the idea that prayer is supposed to be concluded every time, every kind of prayer, every time you pray, Lord, if it be your will. You can't pray the prayer of faith with the faith-destroying clause, if it be thy will. Because faith is based on the will of God that's known It's based on the knowledge of what God's will is. You can't pray the prayer of faith. And now we read over in James chapter 5 verse 15 that the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. So that means we should and can know that it's the will of God to heal the sick. That does away with all this idea that the church has. If it be thy will, Lord, heal our brother. Well, the part that they left unsaid is if it's not your will, just let him die a horrible death. Some people will say, well, yeah, but you never can tell. Maybe the Lord's trying to teach you something. Every person I've ever heard that was in that position that was sick was always trying to get well. If the Lord's trying to teach you something through sickness, why don't you just shut up and learn? Why do you keep going to the doctor to get help to try to get out from under the teaching of God? People are such hypocrites. And they'll do whatever is necessary. They'll take whatever hypocritical position necessary to hold fast to their religious ideas. You want to know what the will of God is? Read the will. If you abide in me, righteousness, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. And that's what glorifies God. Well, I went too long, so let's stop and we'll pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is your will. Thank you, Lord, that all we have to do is read what your promises are. We have a better covenant established upon better promises than they had under the old covenant. You said, Father, to put you in remembrance, to bring the word of God with us to prayer. You said when we did that with the knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus and the righteousness of God that we've been made by the blood of Jesus, you said that our prayers will work every time. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to glorify you by getting answers to our prayers. What a privilege it is to know that you hear us whenever we pray because we pray your will. Thank you, Father. 
for all the prayers that we have that we may not yet see the answers for that are hard at work bringing us the answers. We refuse to turn loose, Father, because your word is true. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Folks, forgive me for going over. Thanks for being here.